Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning. Good morning. We have a new fantastic conversation today. I hope I'm not overusing that word. I'd probably say fantastic about every conversation we're about to have on the Money Advantage podcast, but I'm really excited to be kind of digging into something that if you're in the know, you probably have heard some rumors about. If you don't know anything about privatized banking, you're going to say, what in the world are we talking about today? Is privatized banking dead? That's a very strange question. Um, We're talking about 7702, the um, section of the IRS tax code that makes everything possible within privatized banking and some changes on the horizon that you should know about so that you can figure out how to use privatized banking and is it a good fit for you or is it not? So today we have a really interesting lens that we're going to be looking from and I want to let you know that this is going to be a great time to take your questions as well. So if we are talking about something that you wonder what we are talking about, we would love to hear those questions live in the chat feature on Facebook and on YouTube. So I'm Rachel Marshall with the Money Advantage podcast, and this is my co-host, Bruce Weiner. Thank you for joining me again, Bruce, for this conversation this morning. Yeah, good morning. This is, um, you know, some people might think that this is going to be a uh, very complicated uh, subject. And once again, I, I want to tell our listeners, there's, there's really no such deals in insurance companies. So you have to look at this and say, okay, what are they just trying to, what are they trying to accomplish? And we'll try to unravel that during our, during our discussion. Absolutely. All right. So let's kind of lay a little bit of groundwork at the beginning here. Um, especially if you, even if you've been a longtime listener, maybe you've listened to all of our episodes. And if you have, I'm tremendously um, humbled and grateful that you have done so. Um, maybe you're joining us for the very first time today and you're saying, first of all, what's privatized banking? Why could it possibly be dead? What what can it even do for me in the first place? I think we kind of need to lay some groundwork. And so what I want to say, even before we jump into what is a 7702 plan? What is privatized banking? What are these changes? I really just want to let you know that at the very get-go, the reason we talk about privatized banking in the first place at all is because humans, you and I, have a need to store cash. And really, we need to store cash that we can access and use, meaning it's not locked up in jail somewhere where we have to qualify and, and possibly not get to it or have it drop in value. We need to be able to get to this money. And why? For emergencies, for opportunities. This could be for investment deals. It could be for a high medical bill you weren't expecting. But we need a place to store cash either between investments or just for the sake of having capital reserves. If you're in business, this is a place where you can grab payroll from in a down month. This is a way to level and stabilize your business economy so that you can stay in business and stay profitable and not have to wonder and worry where your next income is coming from. This is part of being a profitable business where you're paying yourself first. So that's what privatized banking is all about. Really, it allows you to build capital reserves, have better than bank rate savings, and the ability to earn never-ending compound interest 
even while you use your money. And that is key. In addition, you can access and use this money without having to go through a qualification process and you can pay back your capital however and whenever you choose. So it's on your schedule, your timetable. So at the same time, all those amazing features of privatized banking, we are coming to kind of a crossroads right now. And the reason is that they're this long time bunker that the wealthy have used for a very long time. We're wondering, is this about to become an obsolete vintage classic? The reason is that there was a new legislation enacted that caused changes to the tax code that gives the benefit and allows people to use privatized banking. And so we're going to talk all about all of these things. I just wanted to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork. So we do know at the very beginning that there's a lot still yet to be determined. And so we don't know the full ramifications of this tax bill, but we're here to talk about all the pros and cons, what the um, the advantages, what the disadvantages are, and what we potentially see going forward for privatized banking. And so ultimately, we want to answer this question. How does it impact you? Because really, we can talk about the law, we can talk about financial products, we can talk about strategies, and none of it matters at all, unless we figure out how does it impact you and how it impacts you is can you still get these guarantees? Can you still get this growth? Can you still have a product you can depend on the way that we have been able to use it, the way that people have been using privatized banking for hundreds of years? Is that still possible? And that's what we're going to be discussing today. So Bruce, kind of as we jump in, is there anything you feel that we need to talk about what privatized banking is before we talk about what maybe I think we should go from that towards what is a 7702 and what are the MEC rules and what does that all mean that was changed by this new law? Yeah, first of all, I, I, I want people to understand that privatized banking is something that was developed uh, from the Nelson Nash, um, Nelson Nash himself or Nelson, Nelson Nash Institute uh, <clears throat> to become your own banker. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he and it's really not it's not a product, <clears throat> it's a it's a it's a financial strategy of cash management, how you manage your cash, your your habits, so that you take the banking function into your own life, and that is that is important to the to uh, an individual, even if they do not. <clears throat> excuse me, even if they do not use uh, specially designed whole life insurance contracts. That's that they good. develop that they develop good habits. So, you know, all these different things that are surrounding this change, and people are some people are losing their minds in a good way. Some people are losing their minds in a bad way. And I'm like, listen, uh, life insurance strategies are always um, built on a bedrock of mm -hmm. of consistency and logic and and conservatism. Um, because life insurance companies in general are very conservative. So whatever we talk about today, really there's no magic bullet. Um, it, it comes down to habits. It comes down to simply where are you going to store your money? Mm, so That's very good. Yeah, 7702 was actually uh, originally enacted in 1984. Um, I, I was around in the uh, early 80s when um, interest rates, this is a little bit of history here, so interest rates were very, very high. So returns and cash value life insurance were, were very, very high because dividends are, are interest rate sensitive. 
unfortunately, the, the contracts at that time, uh, the contracts of the life insurance, they had fixed interest rates. And so what a lot of, I shouldn't say they all did, but many of them had fixed interest rates if you took a loan. So what was happening is people were um, actually harvesting money out of their um, life insurance contracts, and then they were putting it into um, just simple CDs and making this huge arbitrage. And so life insurance companies were losing all this capital out of their reserves. And so unfortunately, ones that were not well capitalized had to demutualize We've never talked about this on the show. No, we haven't. Yeah. And so they had to demutualize. Well, the way they demutualize or why they demutualize, because they needed more capital because they needed it for reserves. So they went out and, and, and became a stock company. And that's what stocks do. They offer uh, an IPO. There's an ejection of cash. Uh, the really strong companies that still survive the day were actually the ones that were well capitalized above the reserve requirements. So it, they weren't affected by this economic change where the interest rates uh, were actually greater than what the, the loan rates are. Uh, just like any good company or um, economic climate, the companies then change from fixed rates to variable rates. So, that so they, Bruce, let's hold that thought for mirror. just, let's hold that thought for one second. So let's go back to something you said about mutual companies, some change into stock companies. I just want to clarify something real quick with that. In case you have not been on the show before or have not don't understand this concept. So a mutual company, if you are an owner of a policy, a whole life insurance policy specifically with that life insurance company, you are an owner of the company and then you are entitled to a return of capital, which is in the form of a dividend. A stock company has outside investors that invest capital into the stock company who owns stock. And Bruce, you can clarify if I'm, um, Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sharing this conceptually here. So what happens then is that company is beholden to outside people, not just policyholders. And also then you as a policyholder are not receiving that dividend in the way that you do with a mutual company. Is that correct? Well, you could, you could, you could still receive a dividend, but um, you can actually receive a dividend even if you don't own a policy. And because well of that, because of that, uh, there's a different philosophy um, because there's a fiduciary responsibility to run the company so that you take care of the stockholders, not necessarily yes. the policyholders. Yes, so well said. That's a very, very important uh, concept to understand. So that was just a little bit of a background on kind of the next thing. What happened was then we got into this situation where people were then saying, well, okay, we have really high returns in these cash valued life insurance policies. The so consumers, right? The, the consumers, consumers. Mm-hmm. the consumers were saying that. So why don't we just take out a very small death benefit, uh, $5,000 and let's put a hundred thousand dollars into the policy. So and what, Bruce, what you're saying is how do we get a small death benefit and put a lot of premium in? That's the dollars that you're funding the policy with. Go ahead. Correct. And then, so um, that, that's a great deal because you don't have the additional drag of a death benefit on your premium dollars. Well, then in 1984, the... Um, Wait, let's go back for a second. So I think somebody would probably be asking, and I find myself asking the same question and then going through the logical path of this, why in the world 
would you want to put more premium dollars in to have a small death benefit? I mean, that kind of sounds counterintuitive because normally we want we want to pay as little as possible for something. If, if we have the opportunity to pay more for the same benefit, why would we do that? And I would say this pre-1984, pre the 7702 code in the first place, you could use, put this giant premium in for a small death benefit. The reason you wanted to do that is because if something is life insurance, it was tax advantaged really in three ways. You had the tax, it was tax deferred as you pay tax before you put the premium dollars in. And as that grows inside of the policy with dividends and interest, we'll come back to that later on. As the policy grows, you are not paying tax on the gains as it's growing. So that's tax deferral. The way you actually experience this though is basically tax-free. And I say basically because it's not called tax-free. We need to be careful about making sure you understand this. Your experience of using the policy is tax-free because if you take out the capital through a loan, you do not pay tax on that loan. If you take out the capital through withdrawal, withdrawal, that is a hard word to say, up to the amount you've paid in in your cost basis, you do not pay tax. And when the death benefit pays out to your heirs, that is income tax free. So three ways you can get the money out and never pay tax again on the money. One way you do pay tax again on the money, and that is if you withdraw more than what you put in, then you pay tax on the portion that was growth beyond your cost basis. So basically, according to using a policy correctly, you would never pay tax on the money that you put into a life insurance contract. Now, Bruce, let's enter that uh, you were going in to talk about um, the legislation that curbed the amount of money that you could call premiums in a life insurance policy, right? Uh, yes. Um, so uh, the IRS came about and said that we need to put in um, legislature here because this was not the spirit of life insurance. This was more of a spirit of investments. And so they had made life insurance um, growth uh, tax free or tax, tax deferred because um, they were trying, and then the death benefit tax-free, because they were trying to incent people to actually take care of their families so that the state or the federal government wouldn't have to take care of the families. And so when this happened, they said, okay, instead of having $5,000 um, of death benefit and $100,000, it didn't exactly flip, but it, it flipped quite a bit. And, and this is one of the frustrations in the industry is that the life insurance companies know the the mathematical formulas for the um, the modified endowment contract rules of seventy seven oh two. However, they do not share how they actually apply them mm -hmm. because they don't have to. There, it's proprietary information. So even s some insurance companies um, apply it even more conservatively than other insurance companies. And frankly, the, the ones that have applied it more conservative, conservatively have, are actually in a better financial um, state because they have lowered the, the amount of uh, death benefit um, required for that particular premium dollar. Mm -hmm. um, other ones have said in a response, we are going to pay our dividends out a little bit lower than what we probably could 
because those dividends would also then buy more paid up additional insurance where other companies have artificially, when I say artificially, I mean, they're following the rules, but they're paying it out at a higher rate. One, because it's a marketing thing for them so that they can get more business. But two, they're not being quite as fiscally responsible because they haven't reacted to the, to the, the drop of interest rates mm-hmm. as quickly as a lot of other companies have. Bruce, and, and so, you packed a lot in there as well. Um, so I think we need to go back to what is 7702 and what did that do and what is a mech? So 7702 is um, the law that says that if you're going to put in a certain premium amount, the death benefit has to be a certain height. Um, and that has that there's a one-year rule. And there's a seven-year repeating rule. Mm -hmm. So they'll look at it over one year. And then they'll also look at it over how much did you put over seven years. And then they'll reset it again. And the reason they have to reset it is if if, um, dividends are set to actually buy more paid-up additions, then those dividends actually boost up the uh, death benefits. If, a, if their dividends are greater than what were projected, they boost it up even more. And if they're less than what they projected, they actually uh, fall. The, the, de- the death benefit would not be as great as what was projected. So then after seven years, it's reevaluated. And let's say you were putting 100000 in. They could come back and say, okay, according to our calculations, the dividends outperformed what we thought. So you can actually put a little bit more in because you have more death benefit than we thought you were going to have. If the dividends don't perform as well, then they would come back and say, well, we were projecting the death benefit was going to be here because the additional dividends, but the dividends have actually lessened. So now you can't put quite as much in. So maybe instead Mm -hmm. of $100,000, you can only put $95,000. These insurance companies aren't going to miss by a a whole heck of a lot mm-hmm. um, because they're pretty conservative, but they will miss because um, the illustrations that are pro- uh, the non-guaranteed illustrations are actually just projections all the way through the contract, which, you know, in, in some cases, if you're taking it out on a newborn could be um, 120 years, 121 years. So which is a long time, a long time for projections. So, so something that I think about the 7702, when that came into be into being enacted in 1984, what happened at that point is they said, okay, you can't just put these giant premiums anymore into this really small death benefit and still get the tax advantages. It's not fair. You instead now have restriction. So as Bruce said, we can only put in so much premium to so much death benefit and call that life insurance still. And if we miss the ratio, if you put in too much premium dollars and the death benefits not high enough, then you lose the tax advantage. And now you have to pay tax on the gains inside the policy as it grows. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Correct. And just to let people know that life insurance companies don't allow this to happen without you knowing it. So if right. you, if you put, if you send in a, a premium payment and it's too much, they will actually get in touch with you and say, if we, t- if we accept this entire premium payment, this contract now is going to become a modified endowment contract. 
mm-hmm. or what we what we typically refer to as a mech, um, and you were gonna you're gonna lose all your tax of uh, your tax free status going forward. Which is um, interesting. I did a little bit of research on this just because I wanted to understand and I wanted to anticipate any questions because I'm thinking we've talked before that sometimes you do want to use a mech. This is not something that should be avoided at all costs and they're terrible and we never want to have that. The problem is if you started a policy with the intention of tax being tax advantaged and using this tax deferral strategy where you're never going to pay tax again on the money that you put into your whole life policy. Now, what you need to realize is that if you end up with too much premium per death benefit for that particular policy, what's going to happen is that you do pay tax. You lose the tax advantage. You're going to pay tax on the growth. My question then that I was looking into is, okay, but what about the death benefit? Is that still tax advantaged? And it is true that you will still not pay income tax on the death benefit proceeds of a MEC, again, which is just an acronym for modified endowment contract. So it's not altogether completely different. The, the challenge is that if you are not wanting to pay tax on the money that you put into the life insurance policy, you don't want to pay tax on the gains, which later on in a policy is tremendous gains compared to what you put in if it's structured correctly, and you could end up paying a lot of tax if it's taxable growth. And so the key is to make sure that you know if you're going to be a mech and only do that intentionally, not accidentally. Right. And like I said, in today's environment, you can't do it accidentally. Right. Which is great. Yeah. Um, And here's the, here's the thing. Yes. For estate planning purposes, you, you normally would not care if you met the policy Mm -hmm. because we are trying to, you're trying to put as much premium dollars in to actually boost the death benefit up to pay gift tax or estate taxes. Um, and so that people that are in that, um, that net worth group would like that to happen because they're saying, well, if the death benefit's still tax free, then when I die and I owe additional estate taxes, my estate tax will be able to be paid, not out of my estate, but with this leveraged death benefit. Mm-hmm. And so they don't mind doing that. And then they say, well, wait a minute, it doesn't make any difference if I still need the money along the way. And I have to pay taxes. It's no different than if I would have had it in another investment and had to right. pay taxes. So it's not. It's not. It's not that I. I always hesitate when people say, "Oh, you got to be really careful that you don't make the policy." And I say, "Well, that's true if that's what you you obviously want. But even if you make the policy and you have to access cash, if you were going to put it somewhere else, it was going to grow tax deferred, and you're going to ac- access it when you." or pay taxes when you access it. Right. Also. So it's not so it's uh, doing it with 100%. knowledge. Correct. Right. Correct. It would it would absolutely I, and honestly this applies to every area of your financial life. We don't want to slip into anything just because it happened to us. You want to be that active participant in control, making decisions that benefit you that are intentional. And so just something that you want to be aware of. Now what is interesting, so this that was the 7702 IRC, Section 7702. So really, if you ever hear someone say 7702, that is IRC, the Internal Revenue Service Tax Code, Section 7702, is what put that legislation in place in 1984 that caused there to be a limit or a ceiling on how much premium you could put in 
to a certain amount of death benefit in your life insurance policy and still call it life insurance for the tax purpose. Everything IRS tax code related, it's a kind of maybe a given. It relates to tax. It's all about the tax treatment. So Bruce, is it? are we ready to jump over and talk about what is the new law that Trump signed in to effect that changed the 7702 code? Or is there other groundwork that you feel that we need to talk about first? Well, I think it's, yeah, I think real quickly, we need to, people need to understand that tax law can be changed at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, and contract law cannot be changed at any time. So anybody that had contracts with whole life before 1984, they were able to uh, retain the benefits of that contract, even though the uh, modified endowment contract 7702 uh, law was put into effect by the IRS. So that didn't change the previous ones. This so that could one, be said as retroactive, meaning you have a contract this contract is going to continue the way it was set up in the first place, but there's a possibility for a tax law to change the way taxes or contracts are enacted after that law. So I don't know if I'm saying that any more clearly. I was just trying to add some additional clarification. What that means is if you already have a contract in place, no changes are going to happen to your current contract. If a law changes, that means new contracts that start after that law began are going to have changes compared to the old contracts. Correct. Go ahead, Bruce. Correct. So that, uh, logically, that, that the same thing will happen. So going forward, um, there will have to be some changes in the new contracts from life insurance companies, which they're still wrestling with this. Mm-hmm. And so that particular, those particular contracts will probably not be ready for um, for people to purchase between probably, or I shouldn't say between, but probably later on this year, but more likely the first of next year uh, mm-hmm. because they have the actuaries have to go through these. They have contract lawyers that are going to go through the contracts and uh, they're going to really look at the landscape of what was trying to be uh, accomplished here. Now, now, if we want to go forward, what was trying to be accomplished is that the uh, insurance companies have been uh, beholden to this low interest rate environment since the, um, the Great Recession of 2009, where the Federal Reserve has driven down interest rates to a point where the life insurance contracts were saying we're going to have a guarantee 4% uh, growth, gross um, interest into the contracts. And they're having very, very difficult time getting 4% uh, bonds to actually cover that ratio. Yeah, I think, can I share something here? I think the way that I see it is that, so the life insurance company starting in 84, they had, you you mentioned this 4% rate that they had to guarantee you, the consumer, on your life insurance growth. So there's the guaranteed side of the contract, there's the non-guaranteed side. On the guaranteed side, you have a guaranteed interest rate and that 4% was being applied to your guaranteed growth that they said, if you have a whole life policy, we're going to guarantee that it's going to grow at this rate. So that 4% has been their, their rate that they needed to drive towards from 1984 all the way through to now. And we've seen 
interest rates change from high environment, like, I don't know, 30%. <laughs> I don't know what the no, interest rates no, were they, back then. At that time, the in 84, they were, no, I don't think they were quite the teens. They were okay. probably nine to nine and a half. I was just born in 84, so I, I had no idea. <laughs> just so, but they've come down tremendously from that point. And so meanwhile, you're putting your premium dollars into the life insurance company for premium for life insurance. They're using the capital that they have to go do other investments, which for the most part is bonds and these long-term investment grade corporate bonds and some government bonds. And we can talk about that as much as you want, Bruce. But the the idea though is that if they're investing and they're not able to get as high of a return on their money internally, but they're still giving you, the consumer, a 4% fixed guaranteed interest rate, that's putting strain on the company in the way that it used to be easy back in the day when they could get a really high internal rate on their money and give you a guaranteed 4% growth rate. And now as their, their opportunity for putting those dollars to work is getting smaller and smaller, they're getting in a position where they're saying, well, it's challenging to make this 4% guaranteed growth rate to you. And then we have to talk about dividends as well as a result. But um, I just wanted to clarify what you were sharing there, Bruce. Yeah. Um, so going forward, um, they have to deal with this um, this lack of arbitrage, as I, I would say, for them. Yeah. And so... Um, what they what you can do is you can you can limit the amount of of um, death benefit that everything buys because that will give them less future liabilities, um, or you can do what seventy seven or a combination of two seventy seven oh two is going to allow is that you're going they're going to allow more premium to go into that that uh, compared to the amount of death benefit and what that will do for the companies now is they will actually have more reserves so that they can actually uh, get, instead of getting, uh, let's say, um, let's say they get 3% on a, on a particular uh, bond, but they can, only, they can only have maybe $100 million of premium that year that comes in for that particular death benefit. Now they might have, be able to have, and I'm just making these numbers up, now they might be able to make 400 have 400 million dollars on three percent but they don't have the future liability of the death benefit on their books at the same ratio and so they can satisfy those those requirements because they are not going to have as much death benefit going out into the future so yeah that's a, that is one way that they can do it now what's interesting and i, I mentioned this earlier is that not every insurance company follows the seven, they follow it by the law, but some of them actually will give you less death benefit um, than the, than the law actually allows you to give some, they can't give you more, but they'll give you less. Some of them will actually do um, uh, have higher cash values per premium than another company. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get a little bit of a marketing edge on an, on an illustration that says, Hey, look at us. We can give you more cash value per your premium available to you. Mm -hmm. And those companies actually have been um, hurt in this low interest rate environment because although the guarantees are the same, they've been actually 
paying higher dividends over a 10-year period than the more conservative companies. So the more conservative companies are not going to be as affected by this change in 7702 because they have been conservative. Where the ones that haven't been conservative, then they actually were actually lobbying for this. And what I find really interesting is for the whole life insurance portion of their books, most of these companies are not going to be hurt that badly. They're just going to change their guarantees uh, going forward as far as how much death benefit and how much they can guarantee in cash value. The companies based on, that, the, based on the interest rate. So if you're thinking, I'm not as familiar with life insurance products here, we're saying the interest rate that they guarantee you as the consumer is now not going to be that 4% anymore. It's going to be I think what I was reading, a floating um, rate that the company can determine or the MEC test is now going to be based on a floating rate that is relative to prime rate, which means the insurance company can make a lower guarantee to you on an illustration, which means that's where your guaranteed growth is. As Bruce, you just mentioned, less guaranteed growth. That doesn't mean less growth overall. That just means less guaranteed growth. Go ahead. That is true. And uh, I think there's some of them that aren't even going to change. The guaranteed growth. Um, they're just going to change what what actually is going to go forward into the dividend section of it. Uh, will yes. be a little more variable, and uh, and they may be lowering. <coughs> excuse me, they may be lowering their future liabilities even more, <coughs> which would be their death benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this actually has to go. Um, well, this is a frustrating thing. Is you have to actually wait until these products come out. Mm-hmm. And that's why, as we were talking before the show, we don't think people should be necessarily rushing to, to get a contract now um, because there may be some aspects of the future contracts that may be better for your particular situation. Right. What, what we always say is don't worry about whether you have these. 7702 from 1984 or the 7702 from uh, 2020 uh, actually just start saving money mm-hmm. in a specially designed whole life insurance contract. And where I was going with this is that the IULs, which are also considered a permanent policy, mm-hmm. they are actually the ones, the companies that were selling these along with whole life they were the ones that were really stressed because they don't have the same type of guarantees within the contract. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't have time to get into how index universal life or variable universal life or universal life products work, but they are also in, in um, interest rate driven products, but they, because their contracts are not guaranteed the same way, they are actually under more stress to perform properly. And they were the ones who were saying, hey, we really need to have uh, lower requirements for, for this so that we can have more cash value per death benefit raised. Yeah, I think it's just the whole thing is very, very interesting. And it is interesting to note that insurance companies were lobbying for the change. Uh, it's also interesting to note that some insurance companies might have been lobbying more than others for this particular change. But as a whole, what's really interesting to me is that if you're not as familiar with whole life insurance, there's two sides of an illustration. One is the guaranteed side. I'm putting this, hopefully, if this is coming through correctly for you, this would be on your 
left-hand side and your right-hand side. On the left-hand side, you're going to see a guaranteed fixed growth rate inside that policy. That is based purely and strictly on the interest rate. Then you are going to have a non-guaranteed growth rate on your right-hand side of the illustration. And that is going to show you the growth based on dividends and interest. Now, a dividend is the return of the company's profitability after they account for certain factors, specifically reserves. So after all their costs and all their expenses and everything that they have to pay for, they are then distributing the profits to the policyholders in the form of a dividend. Now, my brain thinks this way. If the life insurance companies as a whole, and again, I'm painting a really broad stroke across the whole entire industry here, but if as a whole, the industry was being held to a higher fixed interest rate on the guaranteed side, meaning that they had to give a certain guarantee to consumers on their policies, specifically whole life policies, and yet they're feeling the internal squeeze of lower growth rates on their investments, specifically on bonds, then their profit margin is getting squeezed. Because the profit margin is getting squeezed, dividends are getting squeezed, meaning that you're having a lower dividend being paid to you. If as a whole, we take that same context and we say, okay, well now they have the ability to lower the guaranteed interest rate. Again, I am not being prophetic here. I'm not uh, prophesying the future. I'm, this is not a crystal ball, but my, my assumption then would be across the general whole. If you average out all mutual whole life insurance companies, you're in a position then where they're giving you a lower guaranteed rate. You could say that's terrible because the guaranteed growth rate is less. It's watered down in these future contracts and I'm not going to get as much of a guarantee. But my thought would be if they have to have less of a guaranteed fixed growth rate on the, on the guaranteed side and their internal investment strategy is producing the same um, returns as it is today, that would mean that they would have higher profitability. And as a whole, then dividends, we could see dividends improve, not maybe from what they are today, but as a ratio of where your, your growth is as a consumer coming from. I don't know if that's simple at all, but what I'm saying is that if we're looking at potentially lesser guaranteed growth, that could mean a higher percentage of your growth comes from the dividend side, which is not guaranteed, which then you could say, well, that's upsetting the balance of the reason why I'm in life insurance in the first place, which is to have guarantees as much as possible. But I think that this could end up being not bad at all for companies that are for consumers who are getting whole life policies and still having a growth rate that's going to be tremendously um, advan advantageous over bank rate savings. Yeah, I mean it's, it's okay. So instead of instead of somebody having an overall return with uh, internal rate of return in their policy, instead of them having four percent, they may have three point seven five percent. It's not going to change a lot. Um, in my opinion, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I just, I've been doing this for a long time. 
and the, they just don't change a lot because of the conservative nature. So then you're still just asking yourself, okay, would I rather have a 3.75 tax-free return for to store my money or would I rather have, as we talked about last week, a 0.05% rate of return in savings account? So um, that's what I think you really have to, to look at this and say, uh, and you're going to have potentially maybe a, a lower death benefit per how much you're, you're actually storing in the policy, uh, which, which once then, again, not necessarily a bad thing because you're going to have a greater percentage of that is actually going towards um, the interest rate or dividend compounding rather than to premiums within the policy. So it all depends on what you're trying to figure out. Do I need more death benefit? Do I need more growth? So. And I think that's very well said. Um, I think that this could end up being a really good move. And ultimately, what we want to see is long-term longevity in the life insurance industry. I mean, if we just peel back all the layers and we step aside from any of the micro parts of this conversation, we just say, well, ultimately, Bruce, you talked about last week, the five places people can store money. And you said uh, banks, stocks, pensions. Do you remember this list? Insurance companies. That was the last one. Am I, was there five? Yeah, there was, um, I forgot what Brokerage you said. account. I don't know. I, yeah. Yeah. And wall street. Wall street. Okay. So the idea then is that if we are going to not use some of those other four that maybe have some other factor that we're not interested in, either it's the high risk or it's the um, lower growth rate. Maybe you're in a position where you say, I want to use life insurance. We all want life insurance companies to be around for the long haul. We don't want to be in a position where they're uh, being stressed or being strained. We want to depend on them for the guarantee that that they are going to pay out a death benefit, which is the main reason that they're in force in the first place. The number one reason. We love also the advantages that we get with the ability to store cash. But if the companies are under too much stress and they're not profitable, that does not benefit the consumer in any way. So I think ultimately we want the overall profitability to still be intact. And Bruce, I see that you're answering some questions here. Um, right. Do you want to make any comments on what we're seeing on the chat here? Well, they're asking, I, I mean, what we were trying to explain. So let me do it in numbers. So let's say that right now an insurance company is saying that their dividend is 5.2% what happens is the 4% of the guaranteed side is the 4% of the guarantee. And then that means that the dividend paid out was 1.2%. So it's 4% plus 1.2 equals 5.2. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's just say the guarantee drops all the way down to 3%, but they're still being able to get the same returns on their corporate bonds and their real estate holdings and so on and so forth to pay out a 5.2% dividend. So the dividend mm -hmm. paid, the total dividend paid out, which includes the guarantee, now that means that 2.2% uh, is now on top of the 3%. Mm -hmm. So the overall um, payout is the same, it's just that the guaranteed side is, is the same. Now, logically to me, I believe if they lower the guaranteed side, the dividend um, is actually going to be slightly lower too, but not in proportion. And, and I've actually talked to a couple of people in the industry. They agree with me. 
uh, they think that, okay, if they drop the guaranteed side by a whole percentage point, the dividend, the same dividend is not going to drop by the same amount. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But one of the biggest reasons is, is that the dividend buys paid up additions, which the ratio between the dividend and the paid up addition is less than the guaranteed uh, premium to the ratio of death benefit. In other words, the guaranteed death benefit is higher per the base premium than the paid up additions is. So uh, the, the future liability is actually less when you bring down the guarantee than it is when you're buying paid up additions. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe that um, the dividends will only be affected slightly because of this going in the future relative to the, the guarantees. But nobody knows. I mean, this mm-hmm. is people that I've talked to in the industry and they've been in the industry for a long time. And when I say industry, I'm talking about actual, the actual life insurance company personnel that I've talked to about this. Um, and that, that's the way they look at it. But they, they don't have the insight, even these vice presidents of marketing, these vice, regional vice presidents that I've talked to, um, they don't have the insights that the actuaries have. You know, it's really interesting. Um, I just want to put kind of a little bit of a capstone on what you're saying, and we need to work towards a close here. But what's interesting, and we never actually said this, but this was part of the um, uh, 5,593 page bill, which was the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. Trump signed this into office or into action legislation, um, passed both the House and the Congress, and that um, was effective January 1, 2021. So we've already been in the legislation era of this. It's interesting how you can have a bill with all the stuff that publicly people see, oh, I'm going to be getting another stimulus check, but built into that deep, deep, deep down into that bill, there's these changes that can impact tremendously what we as consumers are feeling in the strategies that we use to accomplish our goals. So it's really interesting that um, just because it's already enacted, enacted, I guess that's the word enacted, then that is currently law, but the insurance companies, as Bruce, you mentioned, have to go through the actuarial company or actuarials, and then they need to pass the Bureau of Insurance for each state to be able to design new products that will then be put on the market. So there's a timeline We're we're still um, in the window of currently using policies and putting in force policies with the old contract from the, the 1984 version of the 7702 section of the tax code. So um, what's interesting here is, um, Bruce, I see that you saw Paul Fugere. I don't know how to say his last name, um, his comment here. In the end, we can't control any of it. What we can control is how much premium we all pay. And yes, that's absolutely true. I think that comes down to your stewardship of your own financial life and the control that you take comes down to the steps that you are in control of, which means how much am I saving? How am I saving that as well as possible? How am I investing my dollars with knowledge and control? How am I building cash flow? How am I stepping towards time and money freedom? And ultimately, yeah, so far, we can't make changes to what the life insurance companies are going to do. What we can say is, I know for a fact that I'm going to build additional policies in my own family's privatized banking system more policies. And I'm not saying to myself, I have to get a policy before these new policies are enacted. 
because I would like to, but at the same time, I'm, I know that over the span of my life, I will be continuing to put policies in place, many of which will continually also be after this new legislation. So I am not saying what you should do, but I'm telling you what I feel comfortable doing, knowing that as far as my eye can see, this is still the best place for me to store my capital reserves, my emergency and opportunity fund, my liquid, accessible, quick access, safe savings that I can use for other opportunities. Bruce, anything yeah, I, that- yeah, I mean, in, close, in closing for me, I, I think what people have to understand is that uh, the reason that Congress got involved with this is they actually, these congressmen actually and congresswomen actually own a lot of whole life insurance. Good point. Um, President uh, Biden had to release and disclose his financial and he actually owns four whole life insurance policies. Yes, I saw that. And I yeah. thought this, that's going to be a whole nother podcast. And it's, yeah. <laughs> it's and, unright. And Ben Bernanke, who was our Federal Reserve Chairman several mm -hmm. years ago, actually had to release his stuff and he actually owns a whole life insurance contract and a large annuity, which I, which I found uh, the wall street journal. And this wasn't just, you know, some run of the mill uh, place. The wall street journal actually reported on it. And I thought this was interesting. Here's a guy, the federal reserve who's actually driving down interest rates to force people to put more money in speculative things like the stock market to prop up the stock market. And yet he owns a million dollar uh, annuity from a life insurance company. Mm. Um, I find all these things to be fast, fascinating. However, our, our Congress people and our people that are supposedly making these decisions. Here, I have a, I have a theory. They just want everybody to be deflected so that they can keep all the awesome stuff to themselves and not spill the beans. That life insurance is, and annuities are a fantastic wealth building tool. They just, they just want to keep it to themselves yeah, and I always let have, us all I know always, about it. <laughs> the libertarian in me always hesitates to bring up the fact that p politicians have whole life insurance because normally I think that they don't know what the hell they're talking about in the first place. And now all of a sudden I say, well, no, they don't, they know what they're talking about with, with the whole life insurance. So, well, then uh, we have to kind of go down the, ra the rabbit hole of saying, okay, are they knowing what's awesome, but withholding from other people, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to say that they are, but I'm just saying, if you know, something's amazing, I'm going to talk about it from the rooftop. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, Bruce. And I, yes, definitely. We need to do another show on that as well. Cause I think that's something that people are just not aware of at all. It's not mainstream. It's not the thing that everyone's talking about, but wealthy have been using privatized banking and infinite banking for a very long time. And it is absolutely nothing new. Um, We've got two more comments here. John Fox Ward says politicians want these life insurance companies to stay strong because they own these whole life policies to store their cash. Yes, absolutely, John. And Paul says, I'm not so sure they don't even know where our dollars come from. Mm, you know, that is true. <laughs> you know, what, what I find, I think what uh, he is saying is, and maybe I'm wrong, Paul's saying is that the congressmen don't even know where our dollars are coming from. And I think that's true because when the uh, when the banking crisis happened in 2008 2009 uh, carlos lara of the nelson nash institute who's a workout specialist would go to these banks and give talks about it you know what happened in the financial sector and he was he would talk about a uh, fractional reserve banking and these bankers at these banks had no idea that that's how the system actually worked and he was flabbergasted how few people actually knew about fractional reserve banking. So um, I think uh, Paul's absolutely got it. 
Got it. He hit the nail on the head there. Yes. You know, maybe they don't really understand what they're doing, but maybe they just have really awesome advisors. Yeah. It's not us. I'll just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So what I do want to say in closing here is thank you for joining us on this conversation. I think um, it's definitely something that we will have to wait to see what the ramifications of this are, but I will be the first to tell you, I am not going to wave the scarcity flag and say, you have to get a policy right now or it's going to be over. Privatized banking, I guarantee you, will not die because of this legislation. I guarantee you that there will still be value in using whole life insurance as a foundational place to store your cash. And if that changes in the future at some point, we'll also be open and transparent with you and we'll redirect our strategy to what the new best thing is to store cash. But I cannot envision something that's been around for so long being completely changed dramatically by a small stroke of a pen. I think there is a lot of positive that's coming out of this and a lot still left to be seen. So what I will share with you is in closing, remember that we're on this journey of building wealth, building a life and business you love. In order to do that, you need to be educated and have the knowledge and the skill and the ability to understand and discern what's happening around you. But as um, I can't remember who said it earlier here, Paul mentioned the idea that we have control over one thing. And that is that you have control over how much you choose not to spend today, still with an abundance mindset, but you have control over how much you put to work for you. And that is putting to work through savings and investments that is using wise stewardship. And because that's in your control, that's the one thing that you can expand your abilities and do as well as possible in that particular area. So life insurance is one part of a bigger journey. We help people accomplish time and money freedom. We help them keep more of the dollars that they make, especially if you're in business and you have a cash flow situation where you have, I guarantee that you have money leaks, money flowing out of your control that you don't even realize that we can help shore up those leaks so you keep more of your money then you're protecting that money. Privatized banking is a key part of protecting your money. And then you're putting your dollars to work as hard as possible so that you can accomplish time and money freedom and build a beautiful legacy for yourself, for your family, for whoever you care about, for whatever charities are important to you, and really have your life leave that great impact. If you want to find out more about privatized banking, you can go ahead and go to privatizedbankingsecrets.com. We've got a free guide there on how to help you earn a return on your same money in two places at the same time. Just kind of a, a quick start introduction to what privatized banking can do and the power of it, especially as an investor. And then I would love for you, if you're listening, to please like this video, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, please subscribe to our podcast. You can do that over at themoneyadvantage.com. We have weekly content like this coming to you. We have articles that are written in our show notes. They're not just a few blurbs here and there. It is really deep, depthful, meaty content that really helps you to even dig deeper into some of the content concepts that we've explored. We have the links that we have discussed and talked about as well. So please connect with us and we'd love to hear your questions, your thoughts. Thanks for being on this journey with us. And I'll say... In closing, success leaves clues. Model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, 
Click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Cato's Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Cato's Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Cato's Capital Incorporated or Cato's Management Incorporated.